1965, Hebrew National, maker of premium kosher hot dogs, and among my favorites, by the way, uh, adopted a slogan that was printed on all their packaging and then also used in all of their advertising. The slogan says, we answer to a higher authority. That slogan was printed on their packaging and became one of the longest-running advertising slogans in American history. Now, what is significant about that? Well, I don't know, really. And I think even when they use kosher rules to make hot dogs, you probably still shouldn't eat them. Um, but we're going to, and if you're going to, then make it a, make it a good one. But we answer to a higher authority. I thought that was interesting. Maybe that would be a good slogan for Christians as well. We answer to the authority of Christ in everything that we do and say. In fact, it's a good way for us to evaluate our lives by posing the question as it relates to marriage or parenting, work, leisure, and of course, faith. Is Christ the ultimate authority in and over every aspect of the Christian's life? Does Christ have authority over what I think, what I see, what I say? All of these are questions that I think are worth our consideration. John 5.18, we learn that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because he was breaking the Sabbath and he was presenting himself as the Son of God, and, and thus was declaring to the world his equality with God, but not in a way that was destructive or inconsistent with the true nature of the Father and the Son. It's certainly true that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, and he is indeed God. However, the Jews interpreted this in a different way. The idea of equal with God is, in their minds, Jesus making himself into another God of the same order, or that Jesus is a God in competition with Jehovah himself. They did not understand the nature of the Messiah as being the Son of God that has always existed with the Father and the Spirit. They viewed Jesus as creating an alternate God or some kind of messed up version of diatheism or tritheism, something that even Christians would and certainly should reject. But Jesus corrects these wrong understandings by teaching the disciples and anyone else who may have been present at the time about the unity of the Son and the Father that ultimately informs the authority of Christ on this earth. It is that authority that has given him all rule and and by which he would declare all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is not in competition with God. He is, however, the exact representation of God. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood of the cross. Truly, we answer to a higher authority. So the title of the message then is Answering to a Higher Authority. And I want you to think about that as we consider the reality that Jesus, number one, demonstrates clearly the works of God. In chapter 5 of the Gospel of John, beginning with verse 19 and through verse 22, it says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is in perfect sync with his Father, so that as this challenge comes from the Jews and from those that are seeking to kill him and to remove his influence from the earth, he is also then teaching. Not only has he declared himself to be the Son of God, not only is he being declared as the Savior of the world in Samaria, not only is he now speaking of God as his Father in a very personal, intimate way that is inciting this call against blasphemy. All of these things are now out there, but without a full explanation. Now we get that. That's what John provides. It is one of the most doctrinally rich passages that you will find anywhere regarding the nature of God and the nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son. However, a lot of times we tend to gloss over that because we don't understand the significance of this kind of theology for our own understanding. Keep this in mind. As you consider your relationships with other people, how much more intimate do those relationships become the more you understand and know one another? If that is true in human relationships, how much Greater is that truth in spiritual relationships. And so it still applies. Jesus is in perfect sync with the Father. He does nothing of himself, but only what he sees the Father doing. Verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, only what he sees the Father doing. So he's not trying to steal or take anything that belongs to God because he is God. To understand the nature of the works of Jesus is to understand the nature of the work of God. For he and the Father are truly one. But in verse 20 it says to us also, For the Father loves him and Son shows him all that he himself is doing. The deity and the authority of the Father are not taken by Christ, but given as an expression of love. It is out of love that Jesus demonstrates the works of God that have already been seen. But then he says there are even greater works than these still yet to come. What's he talking about? 
I don't know because there's so much more that comes out of this experience through the gospel understanding and there's so much more that we could point to as an answer to this. But the reality is the ultimate demonstration of the authority and power of God will be seen in the crucifixion and the passionate death of Jesus for our sins as a substitute for our atonement. But then the glory of the resurrection will soon follow. And how do you compare all of that and come to a conclusion? In my mind, when he talks about the marvel of that which is to come, he is saying you will marvel at resurrection. And I believe that is really where this is all leading. Uh, Jesus is helping prepare the minds of his followers but also to declare in a world filled with sin and objection, he's still God and there's nothing anyone can do to stop him. I like that. That speaks to me. Uh, Verse 21 reminds us along the way that as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Among the works belonging only to the prerogative of God is the power to give life. The Jews believed in the ancient age before the time that we have here, but it becomes well in place uh, in their thinking and in their understanding that there were some things that man simply had no ability to control. Principle among them was the power of life. Um, they believed, um, Elijah notwithstanding, that only God had the power to raise the dead. And, and so that belief became very predominant. It is accurate and true, and we see now that it's about to be applied in a way that maybe they aren't quite prepared for, yet this is the foundation that he is building toward. The prerogative of life then belongs to God. God breathed life into Adam. He became a living soul. Only God can raise the dead and give them life. So also only the son has the power to give life to whom he will. Here he's speaking of spiritual life. This is the work of God. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. It is a foretaste of the spiritual life that Jesus gives to those who believe in him now. But it is also the hope of resurrected life that will be realized fully upon his return. It's interesting, as you get older, you start thinking about things differently. Have you noticed that? I don't know anything about it. I just have been told by older people. And I don't know which one of you keeps recommending me to AARP for a membership, but you can stop that now, okay? (laughs) I've been told that we think about certain things a little bit more than we do others, but what I have discovered is you actually have perspective on everything differently than you did before. Every passing day, every passing year, every passing experience combines and is included in the perspective that we develop on life in general so that we see it in ways with the passage of time that we perhaps didn't prior to that. 
as you start to consider those things and, and you start realizing all of that, you start wondering what lies ahead. Well, the older we get, we realize there's less of whatever we know now that's still yet ahead. But there is something else ahead. I was listening to the radio because it just happened to be on a sports station. On Sunday morning, they don't play sports. They play retirement preparation. So I'm driving in. I thought, I need to turn that off. And then she said something about, you know, most Americans are not ready for retirement. And I thought, you know, there's a lot of truth in that statement, but it didn't have anything to do with money. And, and I started thinking to myself, gosh, planning for something that is in this life that is going to be so brief and limited, and yet in the background of that is a future planning about the life to come. How many people will give great attention and almost daily care to the management of funds that will be utilized to do nothing? And yet, when it comes to the reality of their spiritual state and condition, never give a single thought to the preparation of what lies ahead. Here, what Jesus is saying, that he has the power to give life. He is saying, I give you life now so that you can experience the life-changing salvation of Christ in the moment in which you're living today. But you also then have the hope of eternal life that will be realized through the glorious resurrection that is to come when Jesus says, get up. The authority for all of this is founded and grounded then in the relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus demonstrates he's simply doing the works of God. The ground of authority to give life then is given in this verse 22 And he has, as God has bestowed all rights of judgment on Christ, this is further amplified when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Secondly, Jesus deserves worship that is due only to God. Jesus demonstrates the works of God, but he deserves the worship that is due only to God. Now, I don't mean that he's taking something, and I had trouble with this subtitle, Uh, He's taking something that belongs to God. I'm saying that he is receiving something that is consistent with what we would also give to God, but only God. So don't misunderstand. If you still misunderstand after that explanation, see me later and I'll try a different approach. Verse 23 says this, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Verse 23 provides us with an ironclad evidence of the deity of Christ. But it is also grounded on something that we have known for a long time. In Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, the father says, I will act For my own sake, indeed my own, for how can I be defiled? I will not give my glory to another. God does not share his glory with any other supposed God. And yet, he gives it to the Son. Why? Because they are one. They are one. 
God will not give the glory that is due only to him or the honor uh, to someone else. Yet he gives it to Jesus because Jesus is God. Since the Father and Son are one, to reject the Son is to dishonor the Father. To honor the Father is to believe and honor the Son. It is a compelling reminder of the centrality of Jesus Christ to all God-pleasing worship. We live in a pluralistic society, a society that promotes the equality of all religions. But God's word is clear. Any system of worship that does not honor Jesus Christ as the true God is from hell. And there's no other alternative. It is Satan-inspired and a lie that comes directly from his own mouth. Matt Carter wrote a piece kind of out of this whole study, and I wanted to read it to you. He says, one of the current ways that Satan is trying to attack the deity of Jesus Christ is through the religion of tolerance. There's a loud cry for tolerance in our society, but it's not really tolerance that's wanted. True tolerance says all people have the right to choose what to believe. As Christians, we gladly support this type of tolerance. We don't want to force or coerce someone to become a Christian. We know doing so is impossible anyway. It's a decision that must come from the heart of the individual. This is why Christians have always been at the forefront and the front lines in the fight for religious liberty. We believe that people should have the right to believe whatever they choose, even if they choose to believe something stupid. They can set up a religion that worships a toaster as God for all we know. But the religion of tolerance has a completely different agenda. It says we must affirm that all religions are equally true. That's not tolerance. That's a brand new false religion. Satan pushes the religion of tolerance because it undermines the worship of Jesus as the one true God. Though we believe every person has the right to believe whatever he wants, we also believe that only one thing can be true. John Calvin wrote 450 years ago, and his words remain timely today. Muslims and Jews give the God that worship they worship beautiful and magnificent titles. However, We should remember that whenever God's name is separated from Christ, it's nothing more than empty imagination. To honor the Son is to honor the Father and vice versa. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. To honor the Son is to honor the Father, and the honor, this honor is best expressed through genuine belief and surrender to Christ that is manifested in true obedience. Jesus, Jesus gives us the promise that whoever submits to him and believes in God who sent him will indeed have eternal life, both now and in the life to come. True worship is revealed through genuine belief, but also expressed in active obedience to the truth. Third, Jesus declares the words of God. Verse 25 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming 
and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Think about that. Hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who hear will live. Jesus declaring the word of God. And how do we know this? Because he says the voice of the Son of God. Those who are dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. The power of life is given through the words of God, declared by the Son of God. God has always done everything that he has done in this world by his word. The time is now when all who are spiritually dead can hear the gospel promises of Jesus and pass from spiritual death to eternal life. The active agent is shown to be those who hear the voice of the Son of God. We have all kinds of ways that we say this, but I'm not sure that we often really think about it. Maybe it's become too common. We talk about God's calling or how he calls us to himself. What is that? We talk about how the Lord speaks to us by his word and enabled, empowered by his spirit. What is that? Those are the words of God. He tells us that the word will not return void. He tells us how can they believe unless someone proclaims. All of these things point us back. And all of that is not even taking into consideration the beginning of it all so that when God said, let there be light, there was. Everything from the beginning of creation of this universe down to its conclusion and new creation that will take place following the defeat of all evil and sin will be accomplished by the word of Christ. How can we as the church do less proclaiming of the word and still be obedient to our calling? How can we as Christians not give our hearts, our minds, and our understanding to the word? How can we hear it but not receive it and do it We cannot and be obedient. The two are incompatible. The word of God is the means by which we have been brought from death to life. It is the means by which our hope remains fixed until the day that Jesus returns. Even as disciples and followers of Jesus started to abandon him, he looked to his own 12 and said, will you too turn away? And what did Peter answer? Where would we go? You alone have the words of life. (laughs) But the reason that Jesus, the words of Jesus can cause spiritual regeneration to eternal life is because the life is in him. His authority to judge means that he has the power to give life. He alone has the power to give life. If I were to walk into your house and choose from the wall a painting or some beloved artifact that you have on display and then remove it and walk outside where someone would be waiting for me and I say, here, I'm giving you this as a gift, you would think, what are you doing? But if I walk into my own house and remove something and present it as a gift, 
you take no notice because it's mine to give. As the Father has life in his, himself, so has he granted the Son also to have life in himself. How is it that Jesus gives eternal spiritual life? It's his to give. His alone. He gives life that regenerates the soul. Verse 27 And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Son of Man is a title that we see occasionally. It's used a lot in Ezekiel, in fact, um, over and over in reference to the prophet. And it's used of other prophets in the Old Testament as well. John uses it interchangeably at times, but always to refer to Jesus. But there is one Old Testament prophecy where the use of the title Son of Man is a reference specifically to the coming Messiah, who we now know is Jesus himself. And Daniel records that for us in a vision. He said that that this Son of Man title means something. In Daniel 7, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory. And a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. (laughs) This is a strong statement that combined with the use of Son of Man in conjunction with the understanding of the authority given by God to the Son is just overwhelmingly affirming of our faith. Not only as we place it in Jesus for our salvation now, but as we anticipate the realization of that when we are glorified with Him. But wait a minute. There's something even better yet. Verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. But wait, it gets better. He's telling us that we're not done. Not only does Jesus have the authority to give life to the spiritually dead, but the day is coming when he will give life to the physically dead as well. Do you believe this, Christian? Yes, sir. There you go. I'm going to keep these guys on the front row for a while. <laughs> I've stood at a graveside over 700 times in the last 36 years. Almost every one of those people that were buried had spent all that their physical bodies had left. Our remembrances of them were, they were the images that come with the brokenness of this world and that come to us all. But even as I I have stood there all of those times. I would say that 
almost without exception, I have prayed at some point during that time with that family that remained that even as we commit this body to the ground, we do so in the full faith and awareness that the day will come when God will raise them up and we shall be gathered to meet him in the air. And so shall we always be with God. This isn't some empty, vain sort of panacea for the painful loss that comes when someone dies. This is a promise that is grounded in the very nature of who God is and in the way he has revealed that in a physical manifestation through his son and the words that spoke this universe into existence also were given by the same God who said the dead will rise. Jesus even showed us how he could do it. In the previous passage, when he approached the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, he didn't say anything to him other than, get up, take your bed, walk. When the day comes and when God declares, Jesus will come forth and he will say to all who've gone before, get up. And when he does, can't even imagine it. But just because I can't imagine what that's going to look like doesn't mean I don't believe it with every fiber of my existence. And until that day that I see it for myself or experience it for myself, until that day, I will continue to proclaim it as true beyond any measure of error. All in the tombs will come forth all to, who, uh, all to those who have believed and surrendered their lives to Jesus will rise to eternal life. Even those who haven't believed will also rise, but to eternal judgment. It's that simple, folks. It's that simple. You don't just die, cease to exist. The life that comes from God is an ending The question is, will you live it with him in the glory of all that he has prepared for those who love him? Or will you live it eternally separated from him? That's the question. And that's a question that only you can answer. But let me promise you this. All of us, regardless of what you may think, all of us answer to a higher authority.